0: all right let's get our bibles out who knows what book we're in Arrive. Right. you know we've been doing an intensive study in philippians and i'm always working on matthew and philippians and sometimes i'm scared i'm going to open my binder on wednesday and see philippians or sunday and see matthew but it hasn't happened yet and i'm taking my ginkgo biloba so there's hope but oh let's see that's a beautiful flower let's uh We're in Matthew 24. We're we're really going to just cover one verse tonight. Uh, Verse 15. I got three pages of notes on verse 15. I thought we would get through verse 22, but it didn't happen. So uh, I think, am I a little weak, Gary? I feel a little weak up here. Yeah, I'm working out. All right. I meant vocally, but... So uh, let's get to verse 15 of Matthew 24, and I'm going to thank God for the word, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you tonight for all these studies that we can have in your word, and it's because of the Holy Spirit that opens these truths up to us and makes good ground in our hearts and expands our minds to understand these truths. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, Find good ground in our hearts tonight and allow these truths to uh, be stored in us, Lord, that we would be able to pull them up when we need them and to remember them when we need to. Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Well, I'm going to read through verse 22 uh, for continuity's sake. But here's Matthew uh, 24, starting in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads this, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Once again, verse 15 is where we're going to spend our time tonight. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place... 16 says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So interesting verse here as we're digging into end time things. Jesus has given signs of his return. Why? Because his disciples asked, what are they going to be the signs of your coming? And Jesus uh, gives them all these signs. We've unpacked a lot of them, but he continues to speak here uh, and he gives yet another sign. Now, Jesus is speaking here to his disciples you know, his inner circle, he warns them of a very significant sign that will happen at the start of the tribulation period. Now, realize he's talking to Jewish men here for the most part. Uh, This sign here has a lot to do with Israel. Notice it says about the fleeing. Pray that it's not during the Sabbath. You know why? Because Jews don't work on the Sabbath. They don't move on the Sabbath. They don't flee on the Sabbath. And so there's There's a lot in eschatology, there's a lot in end times prophecy that that speaks to the church, but it also speaks to Israel. Uh, There are basically three groups in the book of Revelation that you have to be aware of, otherwise you're not going to interpret anything correctly. In fact, most of the false understandings that come in eschatology about the tribulation and things are because people don't understand the three groups that are being spoken to. There are the righteous, which are the church. There are the Jews, which are God's elect and God's special people and then there are the tribulation saints that get saved during that, and everybody else is in the world. So really, that was four groups if you're counting. But, uh, you know, if you don't understand who Jesus is talking to, you're not going to make the right applications here. So understand this mostly pertains to the Jews, what he's saying here, but there's going to be uh, something revealed, the abomination of desolation. How many have heard that term before? If you have teenagers, that's not their room. Have you ever opened the door in your teenager's room and just, come on. It's bad. It's the abomination of something, but not of desolation. So there's this term here. We're going to take a look at it. Now, this abomination of desolation that we're going to understand and talk about here, it's a significant sign, and it happens, the presentation of this individual happens at the start of the tribulation period now the tribulation is a seven year period it's divided in half into two parts there's three and a half years of tribulation and three and a half years of the great tribulation now the three and a half years to start out with there's relative peace and there's some restructuring but uh, you know it is still tribulation the earth is travailing the people are travailing uh, the stage is being set when we're three and a half years in at the midpoint A shift takes place, and then the last three and a half years are horrific persecution. The judgments of God are pouring out on the earth. You got the trumpet judgments, the bold judgment. You got all this wrath being poured out. Uh, If you study the book of Revelation, you understand that the tempo of God's wrath being poured out increases in such a way that no flesh could survive it unless he mixed in a little grace with it and pumped the brakes a little bit. And that's really what Jesus says here as he's talking to this uh, predominantly Jewish crowd of people. He's giving them some insight. So uh, there's a term, uh, the tribulation. Now, where we get this idea of the seven-year period comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 12, 11. Uh, You're going to see where those who are... uh, you know, interpreting scripture and understanding eschatology, get this seven-year period out of the 70 weeks of Daniel. I don't have time to dig in too deep to that, but the book of Daniel is a very interesting study, an Old Testament prophet that has so many New uh, Testament end times implications. It's just amazing. But the 70 weeks of Daniel uh, translate into, you know, that last week, seven-year period, the seven-year tribulation. Now, what you think the church will be here to see and endure depends greatly on your eschatology and your view of the rapture. So uh, how many know the term rapture? It's not a biblical term. It's a term that was gleaned from a Greek word. But the rapture is basically the catching away of the church. Okay. Now, the return of Christ will happen in two stages. He will come first in the air to extract the church, and he's gonna take the church out. No one's gonna see it except those who are being raptured, and he removes the church, his bride, from the earth. The second part of his return happens when he comes back to the Middle East and he touches down, and he, he touches down at the dome of the rock there, and he comes to rule and reign with a rod of iron over the nations. In between the catching away of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is a seven-year period. That's where uh, all the action in the book of Revelation takes place. You you look interested today. So we get this uh, seven-year period from Daniel. Uh, You're going to view, you know, who's going to be here to see what based on what you think about the rapture. Now, there's basically three camps about the rapture. There's pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. These views anticipate the timing of when Jesus removes his bride from the earth. Now, you know, I've studied through the book of Revelations, preached through it several times. Uh, you know, I'm definitely a pre-trib guy. I believe that the church is going to be removed before the revealing of Antichrist and the seven year tribulation period is not for the church. If Jesus would put his bride through what is going to happen on the earth, he would be charged with spousal abuse. We are not set aside for wrath. The book of Revelation doesn't mention the church from chapter 4 to chapter 22. Gives no instruction to the church. Tells the Jews what to do. Tells Israel what to do. Tells the, the, uh, the, the tribulation saints what to do, but says nothing to the church. Why is that? Did Jesus abandon the church? No. The church is up in heaven with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb, having a good old time. Amen. <laughs> so. There's pre-trib that says we get taken out, then the tribulation begins. There's mid-trib that says we endure a little bit of the tribulation. And then at the middle point, when it turns into the great tribulation, then God takes us out. So we get beat up a little bit. And some people will say, well, the church needs to be persecuted so it can be purified. Well, did you ever hear the doctrine of grace? We're not, pers- we're not purified by what we endure or what we persecuted or how we suffer. We're purified by the blood of the Lamb. The church can't be any more purified in the sight of God. It is covered in the blood of the lamb. So understand there's this mid-trib that says, well, you get a little beating and then you get to go. And then there's the post-tribbers. Now, a lot of people who ascribe to the post-trib, they take it because they're looking at uh, Jesus speaking to the Jews who will go through the entire tribulation, and they think, oh, well, that's the church. That's the, you know, we're the elect, we're this. No, that's Israel. Israel will go through the entire seven-year tribulation. God will protect them. God will make a way for them, and God will cover them. Why? Because the Gentiles' time is done. The church is extracted. Jesus will turn his focus once again 110% on Israel, the apple of his eye. He will begin to redeem them, and when he returns, they will receive him as the Messiah. This is exciting stuff. So, you know, pre-trib... Mid-trib, post-trib, people fall into different spectrums there. The Bible, I think, overwhelmingly teaches a pre-trib rapture. And in fact, if you study the, uh, the cases for each one, you see it gets really thin at mid-trib and super thin at post-trib where they have to tap dance and twist scriptures and misinterpret things. But wherever you fall in that, understand the Bible suggests that there are those who call themselves Christians who say they're the church, that will go through the rapture. In fact, in the book of Revelation, he says to the the church of Thyatira, you guys are going through it. Listen to what it says here in Revelation 3.10. Well, actually, uh, let's look at Revelation 2, 19 through 22. Uh, This is what he says to this church that is going to go through the entire tribulation. I know your deeds and your love and your faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So you started off bad, but you got a little better. That's the closest this church gets to a compliment. But I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds." So God's saying to this group of people who say they're Christians who hold on to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, he says, unless you repent and come out of that sin and immorality, you're going through the tribulation. Sobering, isn't it? So people say, well, Christians go through this tribulation. Well, some people who call themselves Christians do. But listen to this. This is a promise to the obedient saint in Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word of perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. The suggestion is here is those who are faithful to Christ will be spared from the time of testing. The church will be removed. The faithful bride, the virgins with oil in their lamp will be caught up to be with Jesus and not partake in this time of testing that is over the entire earth. So regardless of when the church is removed from the earth, pre, mid, or post, we must consider the sign Jesus warns us about here in verse 15. Now, Jesus says, when you see, look what he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation. So I just want to look at that for a second. When you see, here we go. Here we go. Who's paying attention? Throwing at the people who weren't clapping. So he says when you see now there's going to be people on the earth who will actually see this sign happen no doubt the Jews will see it they're going to be here for this because the sign occurs in the newly built temple in Jerusalem the reference to the holy place confirms this and they'll be the ones who will have to flee from this sign so there again they're going to be in this temple the the the, the abomination of desolation is going to be presented in the temple when they see it they're told those who are in Ju- Judea what are they told to do flee. So, you know, people are going to see this, they need to be looking for it so that, you know, when they see it, they immediately flee. It's so imperative that they flee quickly. Don't go back to your house, don't get your coat, don't pack up your, you know, your game system and take it with you, don't pull any guitars with you, Rick, just go. So, it's a uh, it's something that, you know, they have to be looking for. So when you see it, so people are going to have to look for this and see it. Now, when he says there, you know, Uh, The abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet standing in the holy place. Say holy place. What's the holy place? It's the place in the temple just outside the Holy of Holies where God's presence abides. You have, you know, the courts, the, you have the outer courts, you, you have the holy place. And then inside the temple, you have the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwell. This abomination of desolation is not going to go right into the Holy of Holies. He's going to go into the holy place. So this suggests the, the, that this event is going to occur at the temple so see exactly, uh, you know, those who are watching for this and those who are going to notice this are those who are watching and are involved with the functions of the temple. Now, if you know anything about biblical prophecy in the timetables here, it, it's been prophesied that Israel in the last days will rebuild a functioning temple and will uh, begin once again to offer sacrifices to God. Do you realize Israel is still under the Mosaic Law Covenant, yet their temple is not functioning? It was destroyed, not rebuilt. There's not not a place in Jerusalem where they bring animals to sacrifice for their sins. So they're kind of just treading water with God. They're still in this covenant, but there's no functioning temple. In the last days, the temple will be reconstructed in Jerusalem, and it will function. And right now in the earth, there are things happening that are facilitating this coming to pass. They're gathering the implements. They're gathering the old utensils. They're looking for things that were missing from their culture that were stolen by the Nazis, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark stuff. You know, they're looking for that stuff to put the temple back together. Why? Because they're going to reinstitute animal sacrifice, And when this temple is up and running, uh, and when it is functioning once again, then this abomination of desolation will appear. So we understand that the temple has to be reconstituted. We understand that the abomination of desolation will be presented in the holy place. uh, And we have to, you know, think back to the fact that as we're talking about all this stuff, some of it hasn't happened yet. And I want you to think back to when we started this study in Matthew 24, that I said prophecy has a tendency to be multidimensional. And this text right here is a good proof of that. You know, this passage is a perfect example. Some of what Jesus is prophesying here, what he's telling his disciples happened in their, you know, happened in, uh, you know, Soon after he said it, it it actually happened. Because why? The Romans invaded and what? They destroyed that temple. As Jesus said this to his disciples, the temple was still functioning. But now it's not. Why? Because the Romans came in and conquered Israel, the Romans and the Greeks, and they destroyed the temple. Remember at the beginning of the study, we talked about Jesus prophesying about the destruction of the temple. No two stones will be left upon another. That came to pass. Yet, you know, this happened in their lifetime. Let's take a look at this here. After the temple is leveled, the Romans and the Greeks, they come in, they level the temple, and they take that spot, and they reconstitute some kind of structure there, and they make a temple for their idols, Zeus and Jupiter. And they put them in that spot there in Jerusalem where God's holy temple was. They did this as a gesture of thanks and honor to their little G, gods. So literally... This caused the Holy Land and specifically Jerusalem to become desolate both spiritually and in the natural realm. There was a time where, you know, th- there was just, uh, you know, these areas in Israel were desolate. They were vacant. They were overrun with, you know, overgrown and overrun with wild animals. And what brought about that this this. Spiritual apostasy here that the Romans came in and desecrated. Surely this was an abomination that led to desolation. So some of this happened already. Some of this was fulfilled. One dimension of it was. So we're done, right? No, because the pagans profaned Israel's temple with idols and in the place where God's presence used to be but there is also a future fulfillment of this that is gonna happen in the last days, and it was predicted by the prophet Daniel. It will happen in the last days that the temple will once again be desecrated and desolation will be brought in, and here's when it'll happen. When the Antichrist comes, After the three and a half years of relative peace, where he takes control of the world and brings peace and solves world problems, and there's a a loose peace, he comes in, and you know, at some point here, it's either in the beginning or in the middle, where he presents himself, and then he stands in the temple and says, I'm God, worship me. That's an idol that demands to be worshipped, and it is the same thing that happened in a way, when the Greeks and the Romans conquered Jerusalem in the first place. So the multi-dimensional nature of prophecy. You're all just staring at me. Are you getting this? It's not hard. Just, Just kind of flow with me here. So we're not done. We saw a partial fulfillment of this, and yet there's going to be a last day's fulfillment of it. Now, I should mention that there are two eschatological camps within the faith community that deal with these views. There are the Preterists and the Futurists. I don't know if you're taking notes. Does anybody want to write that down? I'll spell it. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T-S. Preterists and the futurist, F-U-T-U-R-I-S-T-S. Did I spell that right, Kimberly? She is my spelling guru the difference between these two camps color the interpretation of verses like this. The preacherists believe that all these things that were prophesied have already been fulfilled in the Old Testament. There's no end times application. This stuff in Revelation is all allegorical. It's not going to literally happen. You know, this stuff is already complete. It's already fulfilled. These prophecies are done. The futurist says, no, there will be Future fulfillments, even though some of these things are fulfilled partially in that one dimension of that age, but no, there will be a future fulfillment, and the book of Revelation is not just an allegory. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just something to think about. It's literally actually going to happen. The abomination of desolation, the Antichrist, will be a literal person who will, uh, you know, take over planet Earth with one world religion, one world government, one world. Worship, and this is what the book of Revelation teaches. So there are denominations that don't believe in any of this. I'm not going to name them, but preacherists, futurists. Obviously, us evangelicals are futurists, <laughs> Um, We believe that the Word of God says what it says, and it's going to happen just like John the Revelator penned it down from the Isle of Patmos there. Why would God give us the book of Revelation and put John through all that if it was just a little story to be an allegory to entertain us somehow? So regardless of what camp you're in, pre, mid, post, if you're a preterist, futurist, if you're an evangelical, if you're a communist, I don't know what you are, but... You know, we have to, (laughs) regardless of where we find ourselves in the theological spectrum, uh, the biblical facts are that the book of Daniel predicts these five things will happen in the last days, and I'm going to cover them with you. Five things Daniel says will happen in the last days. A future ruler will make a treaty with the people of Israel. The terms of the treaty, number two, will be for a week. That's that seven-year period midway through the seven years, that ruler, the Antichrist, will break the treaty and end the sacrifices and the offerings in the temple. He's going to stop the function of the temple. Why? Because at that time, the ruler of the temple will desecrate the temple. He will set up some kind of sacrilegious idol to be worshipped and declare himself to be God. The fifth thing that Daniel predicts is that the desecration of the temple will continue for the last three and a half years plus one month uh, when Jesus comes back and straightens it all out. But at that point from midway on, the abomination of desolations, the Antichrist, will claim to be God, demand to be worshipped, and if you don't worship him, there's going to be problems. So... The futurist understanding of what Daniel predicts, those five predictions, is that the Antichrist is going to break the treaty with Israel. See, now, what's the biggest source of turmoil in the world? It's really the, the conflicts in the Middle East. You know, even though we're, we're, we're right now we're worried about China a whole lot, we got Russia going crazy there with Ukraine, you know, these are little distractions, but th- the big deal is the, the that portion of uh, territory there that God gave to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel is under constant attack from all of its neighbors. And Russia... Uh, you know, will be a player in the last days. And Ezekiel says some interesting things about Russia, Gog and Magog, that many scholars believe that's China and Russia. And we can see how those two places right now are inflamed. Interestingly enough, they're both communist structures, and yet they will be dragged into the Middle East. Uh, Ezekiel says uh, a hook will be set into their jawbone, and they'll be dragged into conflict. So we, we see the stage being set for this stuff. If you're you're paying attention and you have understanding. So the futurists, you know, we're looking at here, there's going to be this treaty. uh, It's going to be broken. The Antichrist is going to demand that he's worshipped. And instantaneously, that loose peace that happened. See, at first, everybody's going to be excited about the Antichrist, excited about one world government, one world this. And then all of a sudden, in the middle point when that treaty breaks and the relative peace Disappears, the world is going to plunge into a chaos that it's never seen before. That's the great tribulation. Why? Because those who refuse to worship the beast will be persecuted, hunted down, and annihilated. You know, during that period, and all hell is going to break out on the earth. Anybody want to be here for that? I want to watch on the big screen in heaven. Amen. Right? We're going to sit down and eat nachos and watch this. Me and Tim. All right. Your post-trib, you can, you know, wave to you. I often think that if you, I was like, what if you had wrong theology and you had to stay because you were wrong? I'm glad that that's not the case. Some people look nervous now. So the Romans propped up their false gods in the temple when they overcame it. And they worship them there. The Antichrist will prop himself up as God and demand to be worshiped there. And that's what's going to touch off the Great Tribulation. So, you know, you might think, like, what's with Antichrist? You know, he was ruling the whole world, but that's not enough. No, because this unholy desire that Lucifer, that Satan had, has always been in him since the beginning. Now, Satan's desire, now when you call him Satan, realize he was first Lucifer, and Lucifer was the worship leader in heaven, and scripture indicates that he led worship, and that music actually emanated out of his body. Some people think he was like like a giant pipe organ, see, and and I, if he was a guitar player, he never would have did this, but them piano players, they're just, no, I'm just kidding. I wish Micah was here, because I've been teasing him all the time, but, um, you know, he was this beautiful angel, the director of worship in heaven, and yet there was this unholy desire in him. Isaiah gives an account of Lucifer's, you know, ideology. It makes it very clear why he fell. Listen to what Isaiah says about Lucifer when he was judged and thrown out of heaven for his rebellion. He says this in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. If you're taking notes, This is a scripture that you you might want to spend some time in just to understand the nature of your enemy and why he does what he does. Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth. You have been defeated you who defeated the nations, but you said in your heart, listen, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be brought down to hell to the recesses of the pit. Did you notice Satan's sin was pride and it was all about his will? I will ascend. I will raise. I will sit. I will make myself like the Most High God. No, instead of him elevating himself and and making himself like God, he truly wanted to be God and he wanted man, who was the apple of God's eye, to worship him as God. And this was always in his heart and it's why he fell. And when he got kicked out of heaven, scripture says he fell like lightning from the sky. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So what? So he's going to be brought down to hell to the recesses of the pit, but it is his will that he should be God and that he should be worshiped as God. And that's why he presents himself in the temple that the Jews constructed, which housed the presence of God. And he says, I am God, and you need to worship me as God. That's going to touch off a firestorm on earth that none of us want to be here for. So this, uh, you know, I'm going to conclude here by just looking at uh, this idea of post-trib, if, you know, thinking, well, we're going to go through the whole rapture. There's a lot of problems with that, and I want to cover two just because they're important for us to have our focus. You and I need to be focusing on the fact that Jesus is coming for us, okay? If we're focused on where's the Antichrist, and where's the false prophet, and who's going to be the world leader, if we're focused on all of those things, we're not going to have the energy to focus on Jesus. It's one or the other. And so there are some issues with the post-trib view of the rapture that leave us looking for the antichrist instead of jesus christ you see if we're post-trib well then the next event to come is not the return of jesus the next event to happen is the revelation of the antichrist where he presents himself so it leaves us looking for the devil and, you know, but if we're out of here before all of this starts, because Jesus comes to catch us up at the sound of the trumpet, like it describes in First Thessalonians, then we're not looking for the devil to show up. We're looking for Jesus. And so if we've got our theology a little wacky, it undermines two important concepts in the New Testament. Number one, it undermines the calming effect of the blessed hope. Did you, do you have a blessed hope? let me tell you what titus says the blessed hope is for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation to all people instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and in a godly manner in the present age. Listen to 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the blessed hope is that we, the church, get to look for Jesus' coming because when he left, he said, I'm coming back the same way and I'm coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. I'm coming back for you. So look for me, amen? That's the blessed hope. Why does the blessed hope you know, purify us? Why does it keep us, you know, focused in the right way? Because listen, if Jesus is not coming and, you know, we can just, you know, do whatever we can do, that really takes the edge off us spiritually. You know, if you're at home and your parents are on vacation for two weeks when you're a kid, when did you clean the house? Day 13.5, right? Right. The first day, second day, pizza boxes, chicken wings on the ceiling fan. You're just, you know, you're not keeping clean. You're just going wild. Look at some people trying to look holy and blameless out there. No, you see, it's that blessed hope. It gives us that spiritual edge. Jesus could come at any time. The Bible shows that it's a surprise coming. He, he, He says the Son of Man will come at an hour that you don't expect him it's a surprise return. That forces us to keep our spiritual edge. If your parents said, I, I'm not telling you when I'm coming back, but I'm coming back sometime. on, well, we got we to gotta be teenagers once again and just feel this a little bit. So, you know, if, if Jesus is not coming for us until we see the Antichrist, until we see the world leader, until the mark of the beast, until, you know, the chip in the right hand, if, if he's not coming, then we got all that time to get our act together. We can kind of just take it easy now. So the blessed hope purifies us. It keeps us looking for Jesus. And a, and a view of the rapture that, you know, it's at the end of everything kind of takes the edge off. Number two, clashes with the doctrine of eminence. So this word, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-Y, eminency, the doctrine of eminency. The gist of the doctrine of eminency is that it hinges on the idea that Jesus could return anytime. So there again, the blessed hope and this doctrine of eminency works together. Uh, why? Because the parables, uh, you know, that we're looking at in the words of Jesus, you know, they warn us to live a ready life. We're going we're to talk about the parable of the ten virgins. And, you know, the, the five of them that got left out didn't have oil in their lamps. These parables in Matthew chapter 25 are really like parables of readiness or preparedness that we need to live a certain way. So there's the blessed hope that we're looking for Jesus. We're not looking for the devil. We're looking for Jesus. But there's also this idea where he could come at any time. So we've got to be prepared and we've got to live ready. Listen to Revelation 3.3 as I bring this in for a landing. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Then if you are not alert, listen to what, what Jesus says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come. So if Jesus can't come back until the whole seven-year tribulation period is over, so the Antichrist, the false prophet, the world government, the mark of the beast, if he ain't coming back until the end of all that, then where is this surprise catching away? He's saying, I'm going to come like a thief, and you don't know the time that I'm coming. So that's this doctrine of keeping us sharp, of keeping us living right, of living in a state of spiritual preparedness. It's not a time to be slack. It's not a time to be loose. It's not a time to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Amen. Jesus is coming back for those who have oil in their lamps, those who are, you know, without spot or wrinkle, those who are looking for his coming. Regardless of your theology or your eschatology, I don't want you looking for Satan. I don't want you waiting for the Antichrist. I want you looking for Jesus. You can never go wrong looking for Jesus. You know, and a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, it can go different ways. But the thing is, if we're looking for Jesus and we're living for Jesus and, you know, we're, we got oil in our lamps and we're, we're, we're involved and we're bringing souls in and we're doing kingdom things, regardless of when he comes, we're going to go in with him to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's going to be a great eternity. Amen. Let's bow our heads tonight. Oh, you could have kept clapping a little. Father, we thank you tonight for what you've tucked in here for us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for all the wisdom and instruction and things that you tell us so that we can have peace and not be afraid. Father, I pray that none of us would look at the book of Revelation or at eschatology or the signs of your coming and be afraid, but that we would have perfect peace peace knowing that we're safe in your hands, Lord, that we would believe the truth of what your word says. We would keep our eyes fixed, uh, open, uh, looking for your coming, Lord, and that we would busy ourselves with the things of the kingdom. God, help us, Father, to not be ignorant of the signs or the times or even what the enemy's camp is all about or what it's doing, but help us to stay focused on you, Lord. We know at some point that man of perdition, the abomination of desolation, will once again profane the temple and declare himself to be God. But you who sit on the throne of heaven will bring all of this to a conclusion in your perfect timing, and the righteous will dwell with you forever. So, Lord, we look forward to that, and we stay focused on you in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Amen.